sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour you'll find them at the back of the range and here's your host ben adelberg and once again welcome to the back of the range i am your host ben adelberg this is episode 277 hope everyone is looking forward to a great week we're kicking off October, starting that last push to end the fall season of college golf. Big week of tournaments on the men's and women's side. Both men and women are competing at the Blessings Collegiate Invitational, which will be televised on Golf Channel. So make sure you tune in for that. Many of the top men's teams are at the Ben Hogan Collegiate. There's the Barbara Nicholas Cup at Muirfield Village for the ladies. UConn is hosting their home tournament. I am home this week working on some new episodes that will be released in the next few weeks and also getting ready for the Stevens Cup at Seminole. Haven't been there since the 2021 Walker Cup, so definitely looking forward to getting back on property, seeing some old friends, maybe even recording an episode or two. The Stevens Cup will also be televised on Golf Channel. Nice to see college golf on TV where it should be. So when tournaments aren't on television, you might be wondering, okay, where do I find live scoring? Where do I find scheduling for perhaps where my alma mater might be playing next? Go to golfstat.com. I know that everyone in the world of college golf basically lives and dies by Golfstat and refreshes it you know, dozens of times a day when you're at a tournament. But I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast, and uh, shame on me for assuming that everyone that listens to the back of the range knows about Golfstat. So go check that out, golfstat.com. That has the results and the schedules and the rankings. It's a great resource for someone that wants to follow college golf. Merch is still available at thebackoftherange.com. There is a coupon code. For all of the Imperial merch, you can get 15% off your purchase. Use BOTR15. As many of you know, I just got back from Birmingham last week. I was covering the SEC match play at Old Overton. Really a fantastic event, great format. It's 54 holes of stroke play to identify the top two teams that would then face off for the championship in match play. The other teams in the field would then square off in some rivalry matches or a West versus East scenario, but the championship came down to Vanderbilt and Tennessee with the Vols winning 3-2 over Vanderbilt, the top-ranked team in the country. So naturally, my guest on this episode is Brennan Webb, the head coach of the Tennessee men's golf team. We covered many topics, his start in the game, his philosophy on recruiting, his time as a professional. There's a lot in this episode, so we're going to get right into it. But before doing that, I wanted to send a special thank you to Jim Brotherton, the tournament director at the SEC Match Play, Jerry Pate, Linda Stranahan, Aaron Jordan, all the great people at Old Overton for the hospitality. That tournament will move to the Country Club of Birmingham next year, and I am already looking forward to that trip. So let's get right into it. Coach Webb. You're here at the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing well. A big day for me to get to finally get to the back of the range. Wow. See, buttering up the host is always a good start to any good episode here at the back of the range. I'm, I don't know who you've talked to about that to, to learn the, the key to success, but uh, but it's good to have you. And it's uh, 
it's been a long week for both of us with a lot of travel trying to get you know get to Alabama for the SECs and then get home. Um, I had a pretty routine trip back to South Florida, but uh, you had a pretty fun van ride with your guys after picking up the win uh, at Old Overton over Vanderbilt in the final. We will definitely talk a lot about that later on as well as some other topics. But um, why don't we just talk about the van ride home? You have a very young team probably bouncing off the walls of the, of the, of the van. One of your more memorable rides home, I'm imagining. Yeah, they were uh, pretty excited. Uh, certainly, we we all were. It's been you know been two years since we won a tournament, and then to win for it to be a tournament of this significance uh, certainly was was fun um, for Caleb and Cade and Jake um, and Lance. It was their first time winning a team uh, team victory in college, so they got to see um, how enjoyable that is, and you know how much more fun it is than actually winning an individual tournament. I think. Um, you know, we had Mr. Surratt won the individual tournament at Maui Gym, and uh, we kind of just got in a van and drove to the airport, and we all kind of uh, more worried about our sixth-place finish than that. So college golf and the fun part about college golf, winning as a team and uh, all of that, and then just for the fact they are so young and um, definitely an energetic crew. Uh, keep Coach Bo and I on our toes. It looks like it's about a four-, five-hour drive from Birmingham, Alabama to Knoxville, Tennessee. So let's kind of throw one of your players under the bus right now. Who is just a little too much to deal with for five hours consecutively in a van at that point? Who is like, well, you know, I mean, yeah, there is only one answer and, and it's definitely Bryce Lewis. Um, really? Bryce is at, oh, absolutely. As the elder statesman, Bryce has now taken up, um, I think all of the sophomoric humor that he's been holding back while well, Hunter and Spencer and Tyler and Braden and Reese um, have been ahead of him uh, in their journeys here at Tennessee. And he's been holding, it seems like he's been holding it up for about four years now. And he has now taken uh, real, taken ownership of the backseat of the van, which is kind of weird for a, the elder statesman of the team. Uh -huh. And he just kind of holds, holds court back there. Um, and so it's definitely entertaining, but there's times when, you know, we kind of need to slow it down just a little bit. Uh huh. Well, I, that's an unexpected answer. I, I thought maybe one of the freshmen would just be, but I guess that does make sense. Uh, they're probably a little bit more reserved and trying to, you know, go easy with their boundaries. But but Bryce is just all go full, no full stop on that one. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're a freshman, you're still kind of you know trying to play it cool and, and not quite sure. And Bryce definitely has has gone beyond that and is no longer trying to play it cool at all. As it would be very apparent if you spent any time around them. Mm -hmm. Well, I will have to uh, learn a little bit more about this. Uh, I, I'm sure that that trip must have been a lot of fun. Again, massive win at the SEC match play, and, and uh, there's a whole lot of I want to get to with that. But as we like to do here at the back of the range, we don't let a guest get too far into the episode without discussing how they got into the game and their start. And um, you mentioned something cool. So the the average temperature in October in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is obviously where the University of Tennessee is, a high of 70, low of 49. But the average temper, temperature in October in Muskoka, Ontario, Canada, high of 53, low of 34. That's where you started in this game of golf. Do any players ever get to complain about how cold it is when they play golf in front of you? No, no, that's, that is not an option. Um, cause I've always got a story to one up them no matter what. Uh, I don't think any of these guys, uh, here from the Southeastern United States 
have ever uh, cleared snow off in early March so they can finally find a little bit of grass to hit golf balls off of to uh, to get the golf season started. So, yeah, that's uh, it's a little different climate from where I grew up to where I've spent uh, the last uh, 25 years of my life for sure. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, if you had just a, a, a terror story of cold weather golf, and I guess you, that's pretty much it, clearing snow off of the ground to find some grass. And, um, yeah, that's not a good time if you are if you catch one a little bit fat and some frozen ground, is it? Absolutely not. And thin doesn't feel too good on the tips of your fingers either, to be honest. Well, I'm sure at that point, I mean, we're pro- we're pretty close to the same age in, the, in our mid-40s. I'm guessing that... Uh, you're not playing uh, like foam insert uh, irons that are very forgiving. I'm sure you're playing something horrific. What what was your first set of clubs? Do you remember? Uh, my first set of clubs was a well, certainly for cutoff clubs first. You know, we didn't have any U.S. kids. That's true. Uh, stuff like that to get going. But I think my first set of clubs. I'm going to say they were pen folds, a half set of pen folds, oh, probably. Gosh four years old, five years old in uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, right around there. So, yeah, half set of pen folds um, and a a pinnacle 384 golf ball for sure. Oh, my gosh. You're bringing back memories. I think my (laughs) my first set of clubs were Lynx Master Imperials. Not even the not even the parallax that that Freddie Couples played, right? The, right. The Lynx Master Imperials that were, um, yeah. There wasn't a lot of forgiveness there, so I'm not sure that, that I'm not sure those made it to Northern Ontario. Yeah, that was more regional release by Lynx. Yeah, that 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 <laughs> that wasn't a worldwide release. Um, yeah, they weren't exactly shouting that from the rooftops. So um, who knows? They could have been knockoffs. I have no idea. So, so South Muskoka curling and golf club is where you get your start. And you, it wasn't like, you know, dad played golf and just brought you along and you rode in the cart. Uh, this is the family business, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There was, this wasn't, there wasn't a lot of options. You were, you were going to be at the golf course or at school or sleeping. Um, that's how, that's how our lives worked for, for a long time with, uh, with my dad being the, the pro there at South Muskoka for, upwards of 40 years um and we lived right on the 11th tee so the funny part is we talk about the weather and, and the season up there my both my parents were actually school teachers as well uh the season was so short that they were able to do both uh, kind of overlap for about a month uh in the spring and a month in the fall so our day um for for may was we got up and we went out and pulled out all 65 golf carts perfectly lined up my sister and i did that and then my dad's assistants would come and we'd go to school and we'd come back at three thirty, four o'clock when school was out and the assistants would go home and we would sit there until the last cart came in and put them all away and, and went back, back home and did that again the next day. And then they're all, all the day, all day long, all summer long. And then back in September, we kind of combined school and, and the golf again and we're on our way. So not, not a lot of downtime for sure, but learned a lot, um, you know, to see my parents work so hard for, for so long doing essentially two full-time jobs to give my sister and I the opportunities we had in golf was pretty, pretty amazing. And uh, certainly hopefully carried on in my own work ethic now. So pulling golf carts out and pulling them back in, I'm guessing as a young kid, that's, that's kind of a cool job. Cause you know, you don't have driver's licenses, obviously I'm guessing at that age. So you're just driving golf carts as a kid and every kid wants to drive the cart. So that sounds kind of fun. I'm sure though, 
that that is definitely not high up on the list of the worst job you ever had to do at the golf course. So what was probably the one that you'll never forget? Like, I like, you know, borderline, you know, child labor infringements. I mean, wh- what, what did you have to do as a kid at the golf course that you never want to do ever again? Yeah. I mean, right, right now when, when my parents and sister li- listen to this, they're just like nothing. He didn't do anything, but uh, you know, the, the one thing that I do remember was, having to change grips before they had these fancy grip stations and where, right. you know, you, I, I kind of had the club in between my knees and trying to cut it off. And then <laughs> to, to, to pull that tape off, that, that was just the most annoying thing of all time. We didn't know that, you know, use a torch, it'll kind of just fall off trick. And at that time we used gasoline as, uh, Oh, that's healthy. Know, as the lube, as the lubricant for, to put grips on. So to have that gas smell on your hands, blisters from pulling tape, uh, that was definitely the one that I couldn't wait to pass on to the next generation as they got uh, came into the shop working for my dad. All right, so OSHA really didn't roll up anywhere to, to, <laughs> to Muskoka to say, yeah, those kids that are handling gasoline and 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 knives, that's not no, that's not good. Yeah, no, that that was definitely the one I do remember. That that just that smell and the feeling of your of your skin peeling off as you try to get that tape off of those uh, old steel shafts. Well, I mean, time is every timing is everything. I guess is this a good time to mention that your dad won Junior Teacher of the Year award one year? I mean, I I don't know if this is, is that bad timing. I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, my dad, my dad um, was a club pro for forty years, and he never gave a lesson to anybody over the age of sixteen years old. Um, really, his passion, his passion was junior golf, um, and he he let all his assistants make the money uh, coaching the the adults and he uh he, uh, even at times when he was in this part of the season when it was school teaching um when he was doing both he would he'd have a group of kids come to the golf course at 6 a.m and they practice their putting and chipping for an hour before they all went to school and wow um be- because of his passion and, and his um and how much he put into it you know i grew up in a town of ten thousand people and he had over 25 kids uh, go away on golf scholarships uh wow. so pretty uh pretty cool and you know changed a lot of kids lives just just with what he did um junior golfers never paid for range balls at our golf course never paid for golf uh for pull carts so it was uh you know that that was his passion he made sure that that junior golf was an important part of the fabric of the club and uh it certainly carried on and now one of his juniors is actually now the director of golf and general manager of the club and and running things that makes him very proud as well that's very very cool that's a great that's a great story how did so how did you kind of, I mean, I understand how, okay, you're going to be surrounded by this game because that's the family business. Your mom's, uh, you know, there, your dad's there, your sister. I totally get that. But how did you develop a love for the game to the point where you wanted to play it professionally? And now obviously you're, you're a coach when, yeah. you know, at times it probably felt like, man, this is, this is what my parents, this is work. Like I'm going to this course. Yeah. This, this isn't fun. Like you're not like the other kids they get to go, you know, swimming and bike riding and, and go on vacations. And every weekend, you know, mom and dad are home and we go to the movies. Like they're at the, they're at the course working all the time. Yeah. It, I was very fortunate in that I was never really pushed upon up upon me. I mean, the, the working, we, you know, we were there. That's, that's what we did, but right. the going to play and to practice and everything that was never forced upon me at all. Those, it was always my decision. I was always the one asking to, can I go play this tournament? Can I go do this? Um, you know, can I, can I stay late in practice? And so, and then, and the other part was I, I played a lot of sports. I grew up, you know, I grew up playing hockey and baseball and basket and basketball. And I just, 
I just loved sports. I loved competing. I hated school. Uh, I was good at it and, and, you know, was fortunate enough to, you know, to get good grades and, and make good test scores and all that stuff. But all I wanted to do while I was at school was, you know, come up with games that I could make stats about and, uh, and, and worry about the next, the next competition I had, no matter what sport it was. And so I think just the fact that it never was pushed upon me is where I was able to find that love, um, for competing. And I, you know, golf was what I was the best at. And that's where, where my outlet ended up being down the line. But, you know, I played hockey and basketball and baseball until I was 15, 16 years old. Nice. Yeah, I think, and I'm guessing that's something that you probably look at in your recruiting process, not just at Tennessee, but in, you know, when you're at USF, South Florida, when you're at Georgia Tech, I'm guessing you're looking for players or for, for players like that, that actually have a, a well-rounded athletic background. Yeah, I love that. I love kids that, you know, play football and play baseball and, um, and, you know, basketball and, and we're on teams, uh, you know, into their high school careers and understand what that's like. And, uh, you know, going back to this weekend, how much fun it is to win as a team. It's just so much more enjoyable than, than winning an individual tournament. And, you know, you, you figure that out, um, in other sports because in other sports you get to win more, you know, in golf, you don't get to win a whole lot. Yeah. In basketball, even if you're just a kind of a average team, you still get to win 10 or 12 games a year and, and have that feeling. And I think learning how to win is really, really important. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the team dynamic in college golf a little later because, yeah, it's interesting. You know, your your players are not, you know, Bryce Lewis is not hitting a shot for, for, for Jake Hall, um, but they, they can't win as a team without each other, you know, playing collectively. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that later. But as most Canadian juniors tend to do when they decide where where could I possibly play my college golf, um, naturally, I mean, it, it just a clear path was set. You decide to go to Johnson City, Tennessee, to play for the. You're, you become a Buccaneer at East Tennessee State University. I mean, who didn't see this coming? How do you find your way to to Tennessee, coming out of Ontario? Oh man, I, I guess it goes back to you know how fortunate I was the opportunities my parents gave me, but. I was able to come down, and um, I went to Rochester, New York. Uh, I can't remember the name of the golf course, but I qualified for the, for the U.S. Junior. Um, it was at Wollaston, Math- Wollaston Country Club, and uh, just outside of Boston. And uh, I made it to the round of 16 there. Or maybe, oh, sorry, I made it to the round of 32 there um, at the U.S. Junior, and that kind of put me a little bit on the map. But most important, it got me into was able to get me into some AJGA tournaments, and so. Yeah. Played played a couple AJGA events and, and played well and um, started to get to get recruited um, based on that stuff and I growing up in Canada I didn't really know anything about the college scene and you know what was the Southeastern Conference and what was the ACC and, and all these things I knew Michigan football and I knew Syracuse basketball because that's what we got on TV up there but East Tennessee State they were twelfth in the country seemed like they had a good team. Um, Coach recruited me pretty hard, and I was like, I'll, I'll go there. That's the best team that's recruiting me right now, and uh, I'm glad I did. It uh, certainly set up, set me off on a, on a great path in my life, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, ETSU is every kid's dream school, no doubt about that. Exactly. I mean, and you got guys like Garrett Willis, Eric Axley, Keith Nolan. I mean, guys that would go on to play professionally. Like you said, you didn't really know much about the college landscape. But when you first arrive on campus – kid from Canada coming in and and I'm guessing the culture shock had been a little bit uh, a little bit to deal with 
Yeah, it was, but you know, I I was had been fortunate enough to travel uh, quite a bit, and and had I think I able to adjust to the to the whole thing a little bit faster. Um, you know, Toronto city of three million people coming down to Johnson City it didn't really scare me that much, so I was able to make that adjustment and uh, and and get along with uh, kind of fit in with those guys, and you know, always goes back to the love of sports. We always had that in common. Yeah, and you guys had a really good team there. I know that. I know you ended up playing professionally after ETSU, but I know you had a, I think you finished third one year, uh, uh, Nash, uh, at NCAAs. I mean, just, you know, had a, had a good, good solid team there. And as I said, a lot of these guys wanted to play professionally. Um, and I'm sure that the journey you were on playing professionally has undoubtedly helped you with your path of becoming a, an elite college coach. And I know you're an instructor for a while, but you know, you, you see kids now that have these dreams of turning pro after college you know, like I said, you, you were on a great team, but I, I don't think you would consider yourself a, a dominant collegiate player uh, throughout the country. You decide to turn pro. How much success did you feel you were going to be able to attain as a professional? I had no idea. I mean, I was completely, <laughs> completely, completely naive to the whole situation. Um, I I would say that I probably ended up having more success as a professional than anyone would have anticipated uh, okay. coming out of college. Um, I certainly was, you know, I was at, you know, at, at always the, you know, the four, five, six, seven guy on a, on a really good college team. And so, you know, with, if you had any common sense at all, you definitely, you would have, I would have just gone and got a job, but okay. uh, I did, I didn't. And I had a passion for it and a dream. And um, I knew that no one was going to outwork me to do that. Uh, I was able, you know, got my corn fairy tour card didn't have a whole ton of bunch of success out there but certainly um went further than probably 99 percent of the people that set out to do this did um i got to play one pga tour event and then my dad got to caddy for and i felt like that was like my repayment um so certainly it's probably the time of his life but uh yeah i mean i just i was just i'm just gonna go do this and, and i'm gonna work really really hard and I think I probably passed thousands of players that were better than me when I left college by the time I was done um, playing professional, if not more than that. So really it was just, let's go try this and let's see if I can find lightning in a bottle and maybe it's going to work. Uh, kind of, you know, I didn't rush into it. I, I, I worked for, for three years uh, at the golf course, teaching lessons, setting up a, you know, kind of a, a teaching academy there. So it wasn't like, the day after I got out of college, I raced away to, you know, go right. spend a thousand dollars on the Hooters tour. I kind of had a little bit of understanding of that I was able to play some Canadian tour events and, you know, get a feel for that stuff. So, um, and, but the, I always tell these guys, the one thing that was the biggest ad, uh, advantage for me that a lot of people didn't have is I, I had teammates that were playing the PGA tour and I could just always go caddy for them when I needed some money. And they were always, you know, uh, more than happy to help out. And so to have Garrett and Keith out there and, um, and then get to meet some other guys through those guys. It was, you know, I w always had some money to pay for Q school. I never was really, you know, in debt to sponsors or anything like that. So that was, you know, what those guys helped me more than anything, especially Garrett. I mean, he, he, the amount of times he lent, he loaned me $5,000 until I could go caddy for him, caddy it off for him was, was invaluable to me. And I definitely would not have gotten as far if I wasn't able to do that stuff. Okay. Wow. That's yeah, that's a much different road than a lot of these guys have now because there's just not that many opportunities to do stuff like that. And and yeah, it sounds. I mean, I guess it sounds like it. Your your journey maybe is a little easier than what the your the current crop are looking at when they get out there on tour. 
Yeah, I think so. But I mean, also there was way more opportunities for, for guys to make some money. I mean, you know, I can, you know, there was one summer I played maybe six or seven Hooters tour events and made $40,000. Yeah. And that's just not, that's just not out there anymore. Um, these guys are kind of stuck having to go to Canada, having to go to Latin America where you can't make any money. Right. Um, you can, you can maybe advance yourself up the ladder a little bit. So I think that, you know, to the detriment of, of that process for these guys, there's really no, mini tours where you can make some money. I mean, guys used to make a hundred thousand, hundred forty thousand dollars playing the Hooters tour. Yeah. Um, that was, that was real money. And, and so they were able to, you know, pay some bills and not have to worry about it. So I think losing those, those mini tours has, has hurt that this process a little bit. You know, I've got guys now, if they miss, you know, today at first stage of Q school, they kind of just have to wait around until Canada starts back up again in the spring and with no guarantee that they're even going to get a status status there. So, I think the, I think the road now is a much harder. Um, once you get in the system, it might be a little bit easier, but getting there and sustaining a life until you you know fight through that barrier is really really hard. Yeah, I mean, really now they just have to either do Mondays, play in state opens, find mini tours, and like you said, I mean, it's it's if they can just basically tread water, they have to play really well just to tread water until the next Q school comes around. Exactly, and and I think back in the day there was probably you know, upwards of a hundred guys that could, um, sustain a lifestyle playing mini tour golf. Yeah. Well, we're, we're actually recording this. Like I said, we're recording this after the sec match play and, and after the, the devastation of the, of hurricane Ian that came, uh, really on the Southwest coast of, uh, of Florida. And, you know, one of the cities that was hit hardest was, uh, Fort Myers and, there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to take place there. And I know, I know that this is a place that's near and dear to your heart because yes, you are the head coach of the Tennessee volunteers, but you're also, you're also the 2010 Coors Light open champion. And if you thought there was any way we weren't going to bring that up, um, I mean, <laughs> this is, and believe, and this year, March was the 60th edition. It's now called the Yingling open. They're just circling through a bunch of different beer, uh, beer flavors, I guess. But, um, we were talking about mini tours and we just got into this, but playing the Hooters tour, really not the first, I mean, this is not the first time you've been dealing with the color orange, obviously. So, um, <laughs> but, but mini tours, you know, winning a, an event like, like the open in Fort Myers and when you think back to that time, it had to have been one of the most enjoyable and, and entertaining moments or, or periods of your life. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly uh, uh, that I think it was ten thousand dollars, ten thousand um, dollars. I think my 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 oldest daughter was three months old. So you can imagine how much that ten thousand dollars meant to me yeah. um, at that time. And I know it was after her birth because my wife. Uh, had some family out there and we're pushing the stroller uh, with Nala in in the stroller and had uh, luckily had made friends with the tournament sponsors and had a uh, case of Coors Light in the stroller to uh, help them pass the time while they were spectating the uh, super entertaining uh, golf tournament. That, that's good childcare right there. That's, that's, that's... <laughs> Not necessarily that she was drinking, but oh. she was able to put in the stroller for her family and friends that were out watching for the gallery. Oh, I understand. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm starting to see a little bit of a correlation here. Your dad's giving you gasoline to put grips on, and your wife's housing Coors Lights while pushing a toddler around. I got it. Okay. Yeah, no, 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 that was a little early. She, oh. was, she was still uh, only three months old, so oh, okay. I don't think any alcohol had gone down. Yeah, I yeah, understand. Okay. Good. I yeah, yeah. It sounds safe. Um, so, <laughs> so um, I love talking Hooters tour anytime I get a chance to on on this podcast. 
I still think that someone somewhere needs to start a Hooters tour podcast because there there's no shortage of stories. Uh, I've I've heard stories of stolen cars. I've heard stories of sleeping on the golf course. Um, no shortage of Waffle House stories. Um, I, I, do you have a, a Hooters tour story that you can add to the collection here at the back of the range? Uh, no, I didn't spend a whole lot of time out there. I, was, I probably only played probably 20, 20 events maybe um, total, but uh, I certainly ran into a lot of good players and was actually laughing today. I was on Twitter and noticed uh, Josh, Josh Broadway of uh, cross-handed golf fame and an unbelievably uh, talented guy and one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, um, te- uh, tweeting at Zach Johnson, asking him where he was on the list for the Ryder Cup uh, wildcard picks because he used to beat Zach Johnson all the time on the Hooters tour and felt like he deserved some consideration. So yes. certainly ran into a ton of good players out there. Um, really um, definitely a di- different uh, cast of characters and certainly uh, some guys that made you wonder what what you were doing with your life and some other guys wondering, uh, wondering why they weren't on the PGA tour already. Yeah, there had to have been no shortage of guys out there that just could basically, you know, sleep two hours a night, show up, you know, moderately hungover and just hang a 66 like it was nobody's business. Yeah, I was the guy that, you know, had to do everything right and kind of justify my existence. So I was, you know, stretching and working out and going to bed and eating healthy and getting uh, dusted by, you know, a guy that probably had two packs of cigarettes, four Red Bulls before he teed off. And, you know, that's when you're like, God, I, I don't know what I am doing out here. So. Um, but yeah, no, those, there's some, there's just a, a bunch of talented guys that, uh, had the fun. When, when did you start kind of realizing that, okay, if I have to work this hard just to kind of tread water, maybe this isn't for mm-hmm. me, maybe, you know, uh, you know, when did you start thinking, okay, what's the next move? When, when I was fully exempt on the corn Ferry tour and, and played, um, for that whole year and, you know, you, you just kind of get a feeling and looking around going, I mean, I'm probably made it as far as I can make it. And uh, maybe shit wasn't even good enough to make it this far, but just right. kind of did it through, through will and, um, and, and at work ethic. Yeah. It's, it's time to like start looking around, um, and think about what's next. And certainly I wanted to begin a family and was tired of, uh, relying on, on Carrie to, to pay the bills all the time. So yeah, it, it was right around, honest to be right there. I went to Q school one more year. Um, and, and advanced through the second stage and, and putted horribly as as I was usually doing at that time and, and didn't make it through, which ended up being the biggest blessing um, of my life, to be honest with you. Um, just set me up for where I am now. Your first coaching job was an assistant under Chris Malloy at South Florida. He's now the coach at uh, Ole Miss. It's kind of kind of funny when I guess when you guys show up at SEC tournaments and you're looking at him and he's looking at you. I mean, there's got to be that like, how did this happen? But um, you have all this experience as a player playing all over the world. Did that really translate immediately into your success as a coach, or was there a moment of like, all right, I'm really out over my skis here? Yeah, not at all. I mean, you know, every, everyone that plays professional golf, like, well, I could be a college golf coach. I'll just teach them how to play golf. And as you get further and further along, you realize that's such a small um, portion of the job. And so I, like everyone else, was like, I'll just go te- tell these guys what I did. And that's not how it works because you have to <laughs> learn to communicate with 18 to 22-year-olds and they need to, you need to earn their respect and to where they are going to learn something. And 
my game, that's what works for me. It's not going to work for everybody. So it's certainly a terrible way to coach, um, but it takes a little while to figure that out. Obviously, I was very, very fortunate to have Chris um, teaching me that. He was probably six or seven years into his career, and I worked for Trey Jones. He's one of the best coaches in the country and, and certainly learned that. And then, um, you know, to go to Georgia Tech from there and learn from one of the best that's ever done it. it certainly kind of pushed me along to the next level as a coach, I, I would think. Was it something that you immediately thought, okay, this is it for me? Like, I I, I have the, the itch. I mean, what was the immediate draw that I'm sure you were just making, you know, mistakes left and right as you first started, but it's one thing mm-hmm. to make the mistakes and you're like, okay, I get it now. I want to try this. I want to be here tomorrow morning doing it all over again. Was it an immediate, like, okay, I'm hooked? Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, that, that first team that Chris and I coached at South Florida was not very good. Um, Chris had just taken over the program. A bunch of super nice guys, but not the level of players that, you know, Chris wanted to have and eventually what he got to go there. And so I, my main job the first year was recruiting. I mean, there was times when we were playing tournaments that I didn't go, that I was on the road recruiting. And this is before they had any recruiting calendar or limits on how many days you were gone. So I was gone, gone. And, uh, and I really just got an itch for the recruiting and loved the, the competitive nature of that. Um, and we were the underdogs, you know, South Florida at the time was 150th in the country. And we're down here trying to get some of these Florida kids to give us a look against Florida and Florida State and Central Florida and North Florida and all these programs that have been established and, and we're doing great jobs. And so. That's what really got me hooked on coaching is the recruiting aspect of it and how, how competitive that was. And then we, you know, we had some success and got some guys to come. And, and that's when you kind of start feeling like, okay, I'm at least doing something and accomplishing something here. And um, it felt great. So how do you sell? I mean, cause basically recruiting is sales. I mean, you're basically yeah. going, you're, 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 it's almost like you're a traveling sales, traveling salesman yeah. doing cold calling. Um, <laughs> yeah. How do you now? You have this incredible facility at Tennessee. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But how do you recruit players when you don't necessarily have the facility or the program that can compete with with what's around you, like like an FSU and 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 you know yeah. UNF? How do you do that? Because now they're buying you, and you're you're fresh into this. It's not like you have. 20 years experience you can say well we have these all americans that have come through we can do the same for you what are some of the ways that you found yourself to be successful recruiting when you, you don't have all the cards in your hand so to speak yeah i mean you just kind of we just had to figure out what was making you know those kids tick and what they were looking for and you know chris did an unbelievable job and he he had a connection and we got fortunate he had coached brooks kepka at Florida State when he was the assistant up there. And so he knew the family, but, you know, he went a, he went and got Chase Kepka to come to South Florida when Chase could have gone to a bunch of SEC schools. And, yeah. um, you know, but it was like, do you want to come and be the guy and be the one that turns this around and do something no one else has ever done? And I still remember I was at Georgia Tech at the time, and we had actually uh, lost to them at, at the NCAA at, at concession. But I can remember Chase tweeting out, you know, 211th in the country when I committed NCAA quarterfinals right now. You know, that meant something to him. That was different. That wasn't an experience that he was going to be able to get if he had gone to Florida or gone to Ole Miss or followed his brother to Florida State. He was, you know, and so that was the, that's what got Chase to come and Rizal Fernandez. And then once you start getting those guys, kind of that, you know, second tier Florida kids are looking around and going, well, if they can go there, I can go there. And so 
I think if you were to go ask any coach that started a program from scratch, it's always been one guy. And I know, I know Coach Heffler talked to Georgia Tech when he got Matt Kuchar to go there. That changed the perception. And and I definitely think that, that Chase Kepka changed the, the course of South Florida's program for sure. It also sounds like you need players that are also going to be advocates. Like you don't want a player that just shoots the scores and that's it. You want them that are going to also help sell the program as well. Yeah, I mean, players recruit players. That's yeah. that's that's no secret to that. Um, it and it and then a lot of times it's just the perception of a guy like that going there. Like you know, it's happening to us now. I think, and I think that's that's a huge part of of recruiting, if not the biggest part of recruiting. Um, you, that you know, these kids are sixteen, seventeen years old. We're asking them to make a decision that's going to be a, have a lifetime effect on them. They want to have a reason and, and a belief of what they're doing and why they're doing it. You um you just mentioned that you're you're with um you're underneath uh, Coach Hepler at Georgia Tech and then you go you know, get your first head coaching job at Middle Tennessee State in uh, in Murfreesboro so you're back to Tennessee and you know you you spend I believe was it three years there is that right three yeah yeah three years so you're three years there you win uh, conference coach of the year in eighteen and then you you get the job at Tennessee and. Um, at this point, you know all about college athletics, and I, I was watching a little bit of your um, the announcement of you as the head coach there, and your opener during that press conference is Phil Fulmer, this legendary uh, football coach for Tennessee who's now the athletic director. Um, I don't think I've ever asked about the whole interview process before with any of the coaches that have been on the podcast, but when you're sitting across from him trying to sell yourself to a guy that does this for a living, he sells himself to recruits. Like this is coach to coach. Um, what was that experience like? Uh, it was great. You know, I mean, I, I, I graduated from ETSU in 1997. I mean, Tennessee football yeah. was, was all we did for, for the four years. And it was, you know, it was Peyton Manning and, and, and Phil Fulmer. And so I would just laugh at, laughing just like i do a lot of these other experiences i've had in my life you know it's just this stuff is funny and full circle but yeah i mean if you had told 20 year old brennan webb like yeah one day you're gonna be sitting in the uh phil fulmer's office right. and be the athletic director and he's gonna hire you to coach at the university of tennessee i was like come on now first of all i'm gonna be on the pga tour i don't need to be hired exactly coach, but... yeah, that's, that's right exactly <laughs> but second is just you know that's incredible. Like he's Phil Fulmer. And so, um, yeah, it was awesome. It was great, great getting to, uh, to, to meet coach and, um, texting with him yesterday, actually I was playing some golf and, uh, yeah, just, a, just a legend and obviously learned a lot about just what this place was and is, um, from him. And, um, he was, he was a great, uh, great boss to have before he retired here. Yeah. You have one thing, like we talked about recruiting uh, at USF when maybe you didn't have the, the most uh, elaborate facility. Well, that is something that you definitely have at Tennessee. You have the, the, the Blackburn Furrow Clubhouse and, and then the day golf practice facility. And I've never been there on campus, but it looks incredible. And a lot of your players post pictures and videos for, on social media from, from the practice facility. Um, this doesn't look like a place that you'd really want to leave or stray too far away from. Uh, I'm guessing if there were cots and dorms in there, that's just where the team would stay. Um, when you have an advantage like this, how much do you leverage this facility when it comes to recruiting? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, certainly for the first couple of years that I was here, this was our selling point. Um, 
the, the, the program didn't have a lot of history, hadn't had a lot of recent success. And, you know, this, this was it. And to get, and it certainly attracted um, kids to want to come see it because uh, we really pushed it hard on social media and tried to create the story of what it is and how, how great it is and um, what you can achieve if you come here. And so, yeah, that, I'm, I'm under no illusion that uh, I'm, it would be able to get some of the recruits that we've gotten without this facility, um, no matter how good I may be at, at selling and, and sales and, what all that also goes into recruiting. So it's, it's the number one advantage that um, we certainly have had and we're, we'll continue to utilize it and uh, hopefully continue for the program to go in the upward trajectory that it is now. Yeah. Well, you're off to a great start this season. You were out at Maui gym um, and uh, you know, sixth place finish there. Uh, I think a lot of that, obviously, you know, with Caleb Surratt, your incoming freshman picking up his first win in, in his first tournament, that really boosted boosted the success of that week. And then we come into SEC match play. And this is kind of a, I mean, eight, I think eight of the teams in the field were ranked top 25 in the country. And as, as you know, and as people that follow college golf knows that you, in order for you to be eligible to, to go to regionals, to have a chance to get to the national championship, you have to finish in a, in a 50, you know, over, you have to win over 50% of your, uh, um, well, I guess you have to beat fifty more than fifty percent of the teams that you uh, go up against throughout the entirety of the season. That was a long way of explaining that, but hopefully <laughs> everyone understands what I'm trying to say. Um, what were your thoughts coming into this tournament, knowing that yes, you're a great team, but there's a lot of really solid teams in the SEC this year. Yeah, I mean it's it's the best of the best. It's uh, what we signed up for. We're, I think it was a great. You know, going into it, I, I was you know excited about it. I I believe in my team. I think we do have a really good team, and um, I, I was excited to go see kind of measure up against Auburn and Vanderbilt and Georgia and Florida and Alabama and see see where we were. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think we all knew that we were going to be playing essentially two SEC championship um, fields this year, and we're able to adjust our schedule. We had plenty of time, and um, you know, you kind of that's part of the art of coaching is in at this level is to play the best tournament schedule and not be stressed out in April that you're not above 500. So, uh, it's, you know, I, I was excited about it. Obviously I'm was happy with how everything turned out, but I think that it's a great thing for our conference to, to be able to go out and test ourselves this early. And it guarantees that, you know, some of these teams that are, are going to help their strength of schedule and it's going to be a, an important tournament for them, for their regional bid as, as the year goes on to be able to play the best of the best. Yeah, and you guys, so this was 54 holes of stroke play at Old Overton, and then the top two teams will play in the championship match to decide the the overall champion, then everyone else just pairs off, and, and either it's West versus East or rivalries. But, um, you know, this was really looking at the end, on the, the, after that final day, it was it was really looking like it was going to be Auburn. Um, I know for, for most of the afternoon, it really, I mean, Vanderbilt was, was uh, in the lead, and you and Auburn were kind of neck and neck, but it really started looking like it was going to be Auburn. And then I think it really just came down to these last three holes. The I think uh, you guys finished uh, one under par as a team for the last three holes, and Auburn was plus three, and that was really the difference. Um, you know you're you're going to face Vanderbilt, which I know there's several different preseason and rankings and and there's there's golf stat and there's golf week and golf channel and there's a whole bunch of them but you know if Vanderbilt isn't at the top they're they're number two what was kind of the message that you brought into the team room so to speak as you guys were getting ready to face Vanderbilt in match play the next day 
Uh, well, first of all, I was really proud of how we finished that, that, um, you know, the metal play portion of it yeah. to, to, to get, um, the opportunity just to play Vanderbilt was a huge accomplishment for us to finish essentially second in, in an SEC metal play tournament. Um, the way that they handled themselves never really panicked that last day and, uh, just kind of kept going, put their head down, things that we talk about all the time. It was great to, you know, have, um, Cade and, and Lance and Jake, um, and kind of our three, four, five guys carry the load there that last day. And I think bodes well for, um, for what the lineup's going to look like going forward. But yeah, I mean, obviously Vanderbilt with undoubtedly Vanderbilt is the best team in the country. I mean, they've lost one uh, metal play tournament in the 2022 calendar year and they're playing all of the best tournaments. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they, they, they've been head and shoulders better than us as much success as we've had here the last four years. Vanderbilt's been, been much better. Um, and certainly, the job that Scott's done at Vanderbilt the last 10 years since he's got that, um, that job is, I don't think anyone could ever uh, imagine that he would, he'd be able to do that. And so they're, you know, they're kind of the measuring stick. And certainly the fact that they're two and a half hours down the road and we have a ton of boosters and, um, alumni and, and fans in Nashville that, man, you know, for, for four years, they're like, Tennessee golf's really coming on. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, they are, but Vanderbilt's still way better than them. You yeah. know, so they've, uh, so all of that goes was was you know going into this match, and so I I really was not nervous at all. I just kind of was looking forward to the opportunity um, to see where we were, and then to go out and do what we did and beat them was you know obviously cherry on top, and uh, really gave us a lot of confidence going forward. And you know looking at it, they only beat us by four in the metal play portion, and so. Are we better than Vanderbilt? Probably not, but we're getting there and we're getting closer. And um, that's all we're trying to do is just get a little bit better every day. So I wanted to ask you, you have a very, very young team. Um, at least the the guys that, yeah, you have, I mean, really, I think Bryce Lewis is, is a junior and everyone else there, you know, got freshmen and sophomores and you have this really great recruiting class coming in. Uh, I want to ask you about Caleb Surratt. I mean, he wins the elite amateur cup. He plays a lot this summer. Um, you know, wins that that points race over the summer and comes in, wins his first tournament at Maui Gym, and then you know has a you know has a nice uh, tournament there at Old Overton, but you know also loses six and five to arguably the best player in the country, Gordon Sargent. So I guess my question is, how do you as a coach? utilize both experiences you know him winning coming hot out of the gates and then also him having kind of a high profile loss so to speak to 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 gordon how do you utilize both of those experiences to make him better as the season progresses yeah um i mean it's it's been great i mean it's we've really hit you know both ends of the spectrum um the talk that we we've had a lot of talks about it even um even during the tournament and 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 since for sure but I've, I've, my message to him was both experiences on, from the outside look are one was good and one was bad, but they are both positive. Right. And they were both something that's going to help him achieve the dreams that he has and the high, you know, the high expectations he has for himself. And he has, he has to go through some adversity. Um, and it's a good reminder that, you know, golf isn't always going to be as easy as it's been the last six months for him. Um, and that you need to be able to figure that out just as much as you you have to be able to just run with it when it's going good. So the fact that he's got to experience both of those things already in his college career has been awesome. Um, he's definitely grown um, since he got here in both his game and um, in his, in his personal stuff and the mental side of things. So 
Uh, I think it's been a dream start for him, to be honest. And I think it's been better than if he had a, I'm, I'm not sure that um, him going down and winning that, that tournament at Old Overton would have been the best for, for any of us. And so right. I think it's def- definitely going to be the best for him to go through what we what, what he just went through this week. And, you know, we're sitting here talking like he, he finished 90th, but he, you know, he finished 16th or 17th. Right. Of course. And no, then he got yeah. to, got to play and he gets to play the best player in college golf and kind of the someone that I've set, set up for him as a, as a kind of a beacon um, going forward. You know, he, Gordon Sargent is, he's probably one of the two or three best college players I've seen in the last 10 years. And he's certainly somebody that uh, would be worthy of measuring yourself against if you had some high, high dreams. Now, when you, I think you were walking a little bit with Caleb during that final match. I mean, was he down or was he, were, is it almost like the, I mean, was he down or was it almost like a light, no. light bulb went off? He's like, Oh, okay. I see what this is now. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it was. You know, he was like, I, I, I get what, what you're saying. Uh, it's basically what he said to me. Um, so it was, you know, I, I am learning now that I, this, he even said a couple of times, like, well, I got to do better at this and I got to get better at this and I got to get better at this, which was awesome because he does. Right. And, um, and, you know, and if he had gone out there and maybe everything went well for him and Gordon had a bad day and he beat Gordon four and three, you know, he might not have learned anything that's going to help him in the future, which is what, like, I keep going back to what we're just trying to do, just get better. And so he, uh, like, I, I just think it was a great experience and he has handled it perfectly as, as you would want him to. Um, he sat down and, you know, it's kind of did a little reflection on how he handled the success of Maui Jim and how that may have hurt him going forward. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad that he has the awareness, um, as an 18 year old to, to be able to do that and learn that. And I'm guessing it's also a nice thing for just the, everyone else on the team to because I'm I'm thinking if they're looking at Maui Jim saying okay we can just ride this horse the entire season, um, it's nice for them to kind of realize that hey um, w- we did this together as a team this was not just a a team of one superstar or two superstars I mean it was really an all hands on deck I mean gosh this is what was this Lance Simpson's second tournament of the, of his career yeah second tournament of the year finishes tenth in the in the all SEC field is great and um, that's that was the most exciting thing for me is these guys, how they reacted to their to their disappointment of how they played at Maui Gym and and how quickly they learned from that and put and put those lessons into play in their preparation. And we would not have won this week if Caleb hadn't won at Maui Gym because these guys could have handled that one of two ways. They're like, like you said, oh well, we don't have to do anything. Caleb's just going to shoot eighteen under every week. We're good to go here. Right. Or they could have said, uh, geez, we kind of wasted uh wasted a really good performance from one of our players by by us not being at our best like let's let's try and kind of go up to his level instead of waiting um for him just to carry us and so that's what they came back and did and uh physically and mentally they put in an unbelievable two weeks of preparation and saw um the results come come forward pretty quickly this week what were some of the things you guys worked on? Like, what is a typical practice? Are you running the practice as far as here's what you guys need to do? Or the guys kind of jumping in and saying, well, this is, are you looking at stats? How do you kind of set up that two weeks coming off of Maui Gym to, to, to uh, SEC match play? Well, first thing we just, we do is like, what, what are we going to do better? What, what is in there? These are all individual talks because it's an individual game. Sure. And we, 
it's like, what are you going to do better? How are you going to go about doing that? What are you going to work on to, for that to, to come to fruition? And then a lot of the stuff that we talk about is just where their mind's at, you know, and how much of effect of what their mindset um, manifested in physical performance. And so that's really important to me that, you know, that they have an understanding and awareness of what they're doing, why they're doing it, uh, what what causes the way they think, what causes that to permeate in, in their physical uh, game. And so all of that, it's just a lot of talks. Um, one of my favorite things to do is when they're working out is, pretend I'm working out and just kind of walk around and chat with them. And, uh, <laughs> pretend I'm working out. Love it. Yeah. Uh, and, and chat with them and, and talk to them about, you know, what, what yesterday looked like, what's today look like, how we doing here, you know, what, what, you know, how's that coming along? What we talked about a couple of days ago and, um, and do that. And then, you know, I'm looking out on at the facility now and there's six guys out here, um, who obviously have finished up their schoolwork for the day and are I doing see, their I own see, deal. I see what you <laughs> did there. I see, that's really smart. I love that. Uh, and are out here doing their own deal and taking advantage of, of this facility, and, and they're all doing what they said they wanted to work on today. And um, that's, that's you know, the way that they're going to get better. And certainly, like, we go back to the facility is here for them to do that and um, trying to take away all their excuses. And so they, um, you know, they, 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 really kind of learned um and that's i guess been the biggest part of of the growth of the program is how to be efficient in their time and, and to have a, a purpose and a reason for their practice and make it as efficient as possible instead of just coming out here and banging seven irons and saying i practice for four hours today right right well i mean and this is what i mean this is your current crop right now but obviously in the recruiting process you're looking I mean, gosh, what are you looking for when it comes to recruiting so that you can find the right guys that, that fit the mold, that fit the program? Um, you know, there's a lot of juniors that listen to this podcast and, and consequently mm -hmm. parents of juniors. And you're not only selling the kids, but you got to sell the parents also. Like, what are some of the things that you're looking for? And maybe also are some of the maybe some advice you have for juniors and for parents of like, okay, here are some things that you know, maybe not every coach gets turned off by this, but here are some things yeah. that are kind of red flags that, you know, coaches obviously talk to coaches all the time. Maybe yeah. some of the things that you see that maybe parents and juniors could, would maybe change up a little bit. Well, I would say that the two most important characteristics for a kid to come in and have success um, early on, certainly early on in their college career, is is their level of maturity and the level of belief that they have. And both of those things are kind of tied in to each other in that they need to be able to do things for themselves because you can tell somebody how good they are, but that's not building belief. It's fake belief. It's fake confidence and will come out as fake arrogance, but real true belief has to be built from within. And that, and that, along, and then so that coupled with maturity of being able to make decisions that's going to be able to build that true belief, you know, at the end of the day, your parents are there to be your parents. And they're going to pay the bills and um, that's going to make them feel like, you know, the results of what's going on are very, very important. In reality, they're really not. I really, really don't care who wins an AJJ event every week. Uh, I, I truly don't. It's not going to change um, much of what I'm recruiting and who I'm recruiting and what I'm recruiting to. Um, I, I see all kinds of other stuff that's far more important than the, than the results of it because Someone winning an AJGA tournament last summer isn't going to help us win an SEC championship. 
And well, it's going to help that person build some belief in, in that, in that result. But there's been a lot of people that won HAGA tournaments that weren't successful college golfers. And so the thing that I'm looking for are, are, are beyond that. And it comes down, like I said, to, to the kids being able to build that for themselves and handle these situations by themselves. And so, you know, over-involved parents make it hard for us to be good coaches in college. Um, and not because they don't love their children and they're not supposed to be involved in their game, but there's ways to be involved in their game. And there's ways not to be. I think that, you know, a parent's job is to, is to, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm a parent and I'm going through this right now in, in another sport, but to pay the bills and to make sure that they have the opportunities that, that they can have. But it's really, really important that the kids make these decisions themselves. And it's really, really important that they, they make these choices of uh, what they're going to do and how they're going to do it in their games themselves with, with a little outside input, obviously from coaches, but it's really, really, um, you know, prevalent when you see a, an overly involved parent making decisions for kids, um, judging them based on the results of what they're doing. It's, uh, it's tough to, to want to recruit somebody like that, no matter how they, how good they are. Yeah, no, it's, it's well said. Yeah. I, I see a lot of parents when I'm around and yeah, I, I could, I could kind of tell just by watching them watch their kid play. I can almost see like, okay, that parent gets it. And then I can also see like, oh boy, that's, that's a headache. That is, that is just an absolute headache. And I don't know how much that's helping the kid. Yeah. I mean, it, it all goes back to, you know, everybody wants what's best for their kids. So oh, I don't yeah. think they're bad. I don't think it makes you a bad person. It just makes you a bad junior golf parent probably for, right. for moments in time. And we all have bad moments in time. And I've certainly been a, a bad junior tennis parent. And, oh, no, uh, your daughter plays tennis? <laughs> oh, my daughter, my. yeah. She's she's a, a very accomplished uh, 12, 12-year-old tennis player, won a couple state championships here in Tennessee, and, um, has, has all the dreams and aspirations for tennis that I had for golf. So we'll see how that far that goes. But, uh, yeah, it's, I've, I've learned a lot um, from even, even from going and watching her play tennis. And I find myself – about to make a mistake that would turn me off from wanting to recruit my daughter. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I am by no means judging uh, parents. I'd laugh uh, with Trey Lewis, who's a, who's a good friend, and his, his Bryce's dad. Um, I, you know, I always would, would kind of bug Trey, like, you need to calm down. Like, he's a really, really good player. Like, he'll be fine. And I remember after Nala kind of had gotten to a level in tennis, and I called him up uh, and I said, Okay, I get it. Just a little right. bit, though. Right. I, and uh, he, he loved that for sure. And uh, I think he probably even shared that with a couple other parents on the teams that I may have had prior discussions about uh, with. So, yeah, I, I get it. It's really, really hard. But to, if you could find that fine line of um, not being concerned with the results day to day and understanding that all of this is a process, um, you know, we are in the business of, of trying to find the best 19 to 22-year-old golfers. We're right. not in the business of trying to find the best 15-year-old golfer. That doesn't do anything for our program if they're really good in the 15 and not so good at 19. Right. And so I think it, the easiest way to, um, to kind of be good at this is to understand that all of this is a long-term process. It's always about getting a little bit better each day. And um, it's really not that important if your kid got into the invitational and, uh, or didn't get an invitational and someone else did. Uh, that's not really, you know, going to determine their success in college. It just determines that they happen to be better at a certain week in time when they were 16 years old. 
Do you do you have to keep an eye on? Um, well, I mean, I know you keep an eye on it, but how much has the transfer portal changed your approach to to coach? Well, not coaching, but just doing your job, getting the best players for your team. How much has that changed for you personally? For me, it hasn't really changed much yeah, at all, to be I, honest. I, um, I think it's I think it's a great thing, to be honest. I think it's, if the kid's not happy and he wants to go somewhere, it, it provides an avenue to express that desire um and and do it within the rules and we're all following the same rules but you know for us we haven't we haven't brought in any transfers um from other four-year colleges it you know my, my message is always you know let's just keep getting better every day and i feel like that may be undermining that message if we're looking in the transfer portal to go find the next best player to replace somebody um when we have kids here that have worked really really hard try to try to fill that spot so yeah. I'm not saying that we're never going to. Certainly, circumstances lead to different things. We're all trying to still find a kind of juggle COVID and um, the extra eligibility and all of that stuff. And as these rules keep changing, who knows what what it's going to look like going forward? But right now, that's uh, that hasn't been a, a thing for us. Yeah, and you've built a team. I mean, I know you got a couple guys that are out of state and and actually a couple international players. But for the most part, the majority of your team, it's it's you're you got Tennessee guys. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's important, you know. This is the University of Tennessee, and yeah. we're trying to build not just a great team, but a great program. And I think um, having kids that are probably going to end up living in Tennessee for the rest of their lives, that's a huge part of building a program, um, something that they can be proud of, something they can be involved in. You know, we're, we've, we've tried to, um, and I think we've done a good job of, of getting as many alumni to feel like they're part of this deal uh, as we have. But there's, you know, there's a gap there where um, – there was a lot of international players at the University of Tennessee, and it's really hard to kind of for those guys to feel a connection when they're when they're living, you know, in Europe and not, not here. And so, yeah, I mean, if, as long as there's a player from Tennessee that I feel like can compete at the elite SEC level, then I'm going to go try and get them, and I'll be the number one priority. And I'm certainly happy how that's worked out um, so far. You know, there's going to be years where there's probably one or two of those guys, and and there'll probably be years when there's there, there's not any, but uh, and there'll be years when somebody proves me wrong. So sure. we're just going to kind of, um, but yeah, that's certainly been our a priority for us. You know, we're trying to manage four and a half scholarships and that in-state tuition and uh, hope scholarship and all that stuff certainly helps with that. So it's important, I think, for for the sustainability of of a continued success to have really good Tennessee players, and we're very very fortunate with what the Tennessee golf foundation does with the Sneds tour provides these kids opportunities um, at an early age to learn how to compete. Yeah. I know that the Tennessee golf foundation uh, is strong and yeah, like you said, that, that junior program, I love, I'm sure you've seen the picture of, uh, of Limbaugh catting for his son at, at, at that Sneds junior tour event. Fantastic. I can only imagine how uh, gung ho Scott was for oh that day gosh. and ha- how, uh, how much of a, a great feeling that was. And I know, uh, Little bird dog probably uh, yep. oh made some God. birdies and uh, probably and 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 Grandpa was probably there with a couple of boom shakalakas. Uh-huh. So uh, exciting day and yeah, just a cool experience. And um, I know Scott, uh, he loves loves competing no matter what it is, and he loves to. Uh, his kids are competitive, and um, his wife was a college athlete, so competitive family. And I know they're enjoying uh, watching their kids grow up play sports as well. I, I almost think I want to go to one of those tournaments instead of maybe the next Vanderbilt <laughs> tournament. I think that that might be more entertaining. I think. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, we I, I remember we were joking, and uh, Scott had put something on Twitter a couple of years ago when his when his youngest was playing basketball, and um, our 
other friend, Rob Bradley, he just tweeted out, I'll take whatever team you're coaching. So we don't, we all have a tremendous amount of respect for Scott, but I don't think his coaching is just in golf. He's, he's a competitive dude. Definitely don't want to overlook your assistant coach, Bo Andrews. How did you two get put together? It seems uh, just by watching you two, it seems you just operate as a great team together. Um, how did you guys connect to the point where uh, you both end up in charge of uh, Tennessee Vols golf? Well, so when I got the job at Georgia Tech, Bo was a so- or sorry, a, a junior um, in his junior year, Richard junior year at Georgia Tech. Um, incredible young man, definitely the team leader with a bunch of really, really good players. I think five of those guys are on the PGA Tour now or have been on the PGA Tour. And, um, you know, Bo was the guy you could count on. He was the gel guy and a couple time, two time all around athlete of the year at Georgia Tech, obviously high academic institution. He he was able to perform at a high, high level on the golf course and in the classroom and was fortunate enough to win those awards. And just, so so just somebody you just respected, even, even though he was, uh, you know, in his early twenties or even around 20 probably, but, uh, kind of stayed in touch with Bo after I got to middle Tennessee and the funny story he called and he said, I'm coming up to do a qualifier for the Corn Ferry Tour event in Nashville. Do you want to have lunch on the way up? I was like, perfect. We'll have lunch. And he started kind of talking. And I was like, why don't you just stay at the house? You know, it's only 30 minutes from the golf course. So he did that and went and played his practice round. He came back and he went and played the qualifier that next day. Um, he was one over par through eight holes. And there was a rain delay. And he was going to play a G-Pro event that was about six hours away. And um most people are getting in the car and driving because you're not going to make the Monday qualifier one over. But Bo, being who he is, decided he's going to finish it out. And he played the last 10 holes, nine under par, um, <laughs> got into the Corn Ferry Tour event and uh, stayed and decided to stay. I was like, well, you might as well just stay at the house all week. Well, this happened to be the week that I was on the phone with Coach Fulmer a lot of times um, discussing the possibility of me uh, coming to, 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 be, to take the job at Tennessee. Right. And I would always step out of the room um, to take these calls. It was kind of, you know, a secretive thing. Obviously, I didn't want anyone to know about it too much. And uh, finally, one one of the nights, Bo said, what are you doing on the phone so much? And I said, you know, I think I might get this Tennessee job. And he looked at me, and I'm, I don't know if it's kind of offhanded comedy. He said, you know, if you ever get one of those big jobs, I'll come be your assistant. And uh, the way Bo tells it is that he went and played really, really well at the Corn Ferry Tour event that week and missed the cut and felt like, you know, he needed to be looking at something else to do. And I got the job the following Monday. I called him and I said, hey, I got that Tennessee job. If you're being serious about being my assistant, you have two weeks to decide and, and let me know. And so he took about four weeks to decide, but he decided he wanted to do it. And uh, it's been incredible. It's been amazing for me um, how much he's helped in the transition, but just to not have to go through the getting to know your assistant process right, invaluable, right. In, invaluable to us. And uh, I mean, he, he earned my trust uh, far before he became my assistant. And so it's just been a great, uh, a great thing. His fiance um, moved up from, from Atlanta, got her master's at Tennessee. She's really the, 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 the leading VFL now of the four of us. And uh, we've, we've kind of enjoyed it. All of us kind of becoming a, a family and, and closer and, it's been a great, been great. I can't imagine how um, how much better that tr- that transition could have gone for me. It sounds like he just basically followed the exact same path as you did. So it has this like, oh yeah, I remember that. I mean, it really sounds like basically I could just slap his name on this episode too, and just that's it's a two for one <laughs> kind of thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, he had a lot more success in college golf than me, so probably a, more of a justifiable run at a professional golf. But uh, yeah, no, he's he's uh, he, he's loved every minute of it. He's born to do this. These guys absolutely adore Coach Bo, and um, and he's earned their trust in, in everything that they're trying to accomplish. Uh, and we're very very fortunate that he's here for sure. Well, I will I will get you out of here. I know you got a couple more tournaments this fall to kind of get ready for and then uh you know this the spring will be upon us before we know it. I know that uh that it's a long season, so gotta kinda of pace yourselves. But there's a guy that I, I still I, I, I let him get out of the amateur ranks. I gotta I gotta track him down. Who knows where he is right now, but I, I gotta track this guy down. Um before I let you go, give me a story about about mr walcott who arguably best facial hair, i mean best facial hair in the history of tennessee golf that at least during your tenure yeah definitely uh not with not a lot of competition right for sure um but yeah uh hunter hunter was was great uh i i i love hunter walcott he uh he was one of the guys that helped me turn this deal around and uh we had a great uh, great start to our relationship uh, he was kind of thinking about leaving and going to Tennessee and I kind of challenged him a little bit and asked him to, you know, stay here and, and, and become who everyone thought he was going to become. And, uh, you know, he set, set a, a great example for, for his work ethic for those first, first few years and helped, uh, helped all of this. So, um, I, I'd, I'd do anything, anything I could ever do to help Hunter walk up, but he's just, uh, you know, he was, he was a maniac, uh, with his work and what he did, um, from a golf standpoint, some of the shots that he hit uh, that other people just aren't capable of doing, it was uh, it was crazy. But yeah, I mean, I think um, definitely the one downfall was that god awful mustache that he had. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that thing, uh, there was stuff growing in there and food from two days earlier. He was just so excited to to have it that he forgot that he actually had to maintain it and trim it. So, um, but yeah, I heard. Uh, you know, word on the street is he's become a huge, huge fan of the Liberty women's soccer team. He's spending a lot of time up there in Lynchburg. Really? Um, wa- yeah, watching women's soccer. So I'm not sure if he's looking for a career in uh, women's soccer pro scouting. But, uh, yeah, that's that's the word on the street. Um, Coach Jeff Thomas up there at Liberty is keeping me abreast on his comings and goings up there and practicing and, and um, you know, advancing through his professional early stages of his professional golf career but yeah huge huge liberty women's uh soccer fan right now interesting is he more focused on defense or offense or goalkeeping Uh, he's more of an offensive player from what i can gather he's Uh really taken to to uh how how well they are at attacking and 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 their goal scoring so yeah he he's he's specialized scouting right now Uh uh-huh Okay. All right. I'll, I'll have to dig into that and do a little more additional research. Um, I mean, is he, is he kind of, you know, just staying around the midfield or is he kind of more forward in his approach? Would you say? Uh, he, he hasn't really specified that to me yet, uh-huh. really okay. that subject, but, uh, I think, I think as well as you are at digging stuff, I mean, you, you found the Coors Light open. You can figure out where he, where he, uh, his real interest lies. I think through some Instagram posts. Uh huh. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate the the uh, information that you're passing along because, you know, we we do like to find these different things out on. Oh boy. Okay. I just pulled up Instagram. Okay. Let's just let's just narrow it. Okay. This is not going to be very hard at all. Okay. Perfect. Uh, you gave me the roster. I could tell you where he's really uh, specified. I got the roster right in front of me, and I'm just trying to match okay. up the Instagram post to the <laughs> roster pictures. But um, wow, 
All right. So moving on. <laughs> anything else we need to talk about, Coach? Have we covered everything, or uh, you know, what else can you tell me and listeners about the University of Tennessee moving forward that they should be uh, keep an eye out for? Just um, you know, pay attention to uh, to the athletic department right now. We're definitely on the upward swing. All all of these teams are are going forward. Um, finally, getting to watch some really good football here, and um, we're excited about the tread trajectory of the entire athletic department. And uh, we're certainly trying to keep our keep up with that from the from the men's golf standpoint. So, very excited. Great times to be in Knoxville. Great time to be of all. And, we're, uh, we're looking forward to, to the future for sure. I will let you get out of here. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, tell tell Peyton Manning I said hi, and uh, I will see you down the road, and I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate you having me, and uh, love love everything you're doing here. And there you have it. Special thanks to Coach Brennan Webb from the University of Tennessee Men's Golf Program. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every single episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.